Welcome to the Gods of Tomorrow podcast, where we discuss religious deconstruction, secular humanism, political activism, and epistemology. Together, we explore how to solve human problems with human solutions. We deconstruct, we activate, and then most importantly, we live our fucking lives. I am your host, Josh Ra, and you are the gods of tomorrow. All right, all right, all right. Let's uh, let's do this shit. Welcome back, everybody, to the Gods of Tomorrow. This is episode 17. I'm your host, Josh Ra, and you can call me Josh. Today, we're going to bring in another guest to an interview. You guys probably recognize her as Christy Burke, but before I bring her in, I hope that you guys will indulge me here just for a short monologue. I know we're going to be talking about morality today and belief systems, and so I just want to give a little bit of background about beliefs. Now, for most of us, we don't think about our beliefs really deeply and think about where these come from. But they are powerful and necessary things. They're things that govern our societies, our day-to-day lives, our aspirations, our relationships. And they're usually introduced to us at an early stage in our environment, typically from our parents. And research tells us that these beliefs are typically formed by the age of seven. Another interesting thing about beliefs is that they're stored rooted, if you will, in our frontal lobe. And this is where our religious beliefs are primarily stored, which is what tells us that religion is uniquely human because it's in this most developed part of our brain that we don't see in other animals within the animal kingdom. So I'm not sure if you guys are aware of that or not, uh, but we do know, and I I know this because I've done a lot of research on it, uh, that beliefs also change over time. They develop, they are impacted by our experiences, by new information, and they adjust. So it always strikes me as strange when atheists are told, especially atheists that have moved out of Christianity or another belief system, that, well, you never truly believed. Oh, that's not entirely true. There was a belief. It was impacted by new information, and it changed. And oftentimes, that that root of belief is still there, but there's now overgrowth. There's additional uh ideas that have been built on top of it that have challenged it and that has allowed it to grow. Now, every few years, this is what research has told us, every few years, our worldview is based on this new information and this experience that we encounter uh, during that time frame, and that's what impacts it. So if you spend all of your time in a dark, closed room listening to the same record playing over and over again, that change is going to be rather insignificant. But for those that challenge themselves to go out and have new experiences, to challenge their own biases, to not fall into ethnocentric behavior, this can really be life altering. And you can see that their beliefs can really be impacted. Those that have been following my podcast for a while probably know that I I give myself a personality test every three years. Um, 300 questions, Uh, looking at my own belief systems. I've done this since the age of 18, and I have seen a steady shift in all of my beliefs um, on a continuum where I've become more masculine, more hardened in my beliefs, um, have picked up new ideas about pacifism, where my dogmatism has reduced by watching uh, how I have engaged with the world and how that's impacted the way that I think about it. Now, one more brief piece here that I want to share with you before we bring in our guest is that We know also that most people that leave their faith leave before the age of 24, or at least start to question it by the age of 24, and it falls away. And according to Pew Research, whether we're seeing Catholics going to Protestants, Protestants jumping into another Protestant group, or either going to an unaffiliated group or accepting atheism as their belief, this is due specifically to religious and moral beliefs. So, fascinating stuff, and I think hopefully a a good introduction here as we bring in Christy Burke. So excited to have you here, Christy, and talking about your own journey and the challenges you've had to your belief system. Welcome. Hi, I'm excited to be here. This is um, this is really cool. I really love what you just said about you know about beliefs and how much they impact our everyday lives, the mm-hmm. things we do, the, the, the our worldviews, the way we interact with others, um, how we vote. 
all of those things. And it's funny because in our conversations, um, you know, we have a lot of conversations with atheists, theists, mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't really understand why we pick apart beliefs. They think that beliefs are like this kind of protected thing, mm -hmm. you know, within each individual, and we're not supposed to criticize or talk about it. And I think that that's very dangerous because the fact that beliefs impact who we are, how we interact, and, and the things that we do. Um, and so I think it's very important that we talk about beliefs and that we, you know, kind of unpack them and are willing to get together to actually discuss them and, and critique them if, if need be, because beliefs can be dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. They, they need that analyzation and they, and they need to be tested against other people to see what truth is held in them. When you, when you realize that so many of them are kind of implanted into the mind so early on uh, that they become, I'm trying to remember the exact language that they utilize for this in research, but their core beliefs that people yeah. um, essentially have defensive mechanisms against to keep themselves safe and don't allow others to uh, challenge because it's going to threaten their worldview. I've had long conversations with people on TikTok on the other side of the fence that are like, no, 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 you can't challenge that. You can't talk about that. You can't speak about that. And it comes off as being ethnocentric. It's, it comes off as being very dangerous where my way is the only right way. Anyone who thinks different than me is dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I think every person should be willing to have every belief that they have challenged and you, you should be willing to stand up to, the, you know, the critique. And if your belief stands, if you feel that, you know, the critique isn't, um, you know, enough to actually make you step off that platform, then, mm -hmm. okay, at the end of the day, then, you know, you hold your beliefs stronger than you did before. Right. So why not? Why not be open to having your beliefs challenged and then see what happens from there? Mm -hmm. now, I know we're going to dive more into this because I, I think there's so much for us to, to be said around our beliefs, how our morality is formed. Uh, but for those yeah. that don't know your story, and I know your story fairly well, and it's very interesting to me how much our stories parallel. I think our stories parallel a lot. I think the way that we approach information, the way we share information, oftentimes has a similar feel to it. And people probably recognize that, especially on TikTok. Um, but if you wouldn't mind, tell a little bit about your story in the church, growing up early on, being there, being baptized, and what challenged you to start moving away from that and questioning everything. Everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So you guys got a, a few hours. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I was raised in the church. In my family that did not believe in God, follow God, love God. Um, and so I think from the moment that I was born, there were very high expectations placed on me that I was going to be a Christian woman, a godly woman, a wife, a mother. Um, and that was going to be my role you know, in life. And I don't think that my family ever even saw anything different happening for me. That was just in their mind, that's how it was going to be. And so they raised me in church. I went to church the first week of my life. My grandmother took me and I was raised in that church um, for most of my life um, up until I was about uh, 19, 18, 19. Um, and I, as, uh, at five is when I said the prayer and I was baptized, you know, and I think that happens a lot of times in Southern Baptist families. Um, well, really in any fundamentalist kind of religion, they're all going to kind of get on you as soon as you reach that age of accountability mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? and they're going to get you to say the prayer and make sure that your soul is saved. And so that's what I did at five and I was baptized. And from there on out, you know, I had a semi-normal childhood. Um, I'd say in the, the earlier years, we weren't super fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. um, my household was a little bit more secular. We watched secular movies and listened to secular music, but we were at church every Sunday, every Wednesday. So um, it was pretty normal up until I was about 14. Um, and that's when I started getting more serious mm -hmm. about faith. You know, when you're raised, I, I'm, I'm the kind of person that when I get into something, I am all in, like mm -hmm. I dedicate myself to it. And so Growing up in this church where every week they're telling me Jesus is the only way, you know, this is the the only path to happiness. You will, if you go out into the world without Jesus, you're going to be destroyed by Satan and his demons and you could go to hell. You know, all of these things that they're feeding me on a weekly basis, it's, I'm internalizing. And by the time I was about 14, I got into a situation where I felt like I needed to dedicate my life to this. Like, I can't be lukewarm. You know, mm -hmm. I can't just half-ass it. I have to dedicate my entire life to it. And that's what I had decided to do. 
And from then on out, um, my household became a bit more fundamentalist. I think my parents kind of fed off of me and, mm -hmm. you know, we continued going to church and I got involved in missions and, you know, all the stuff that you get into when you get really deep into the sauce. And um, it was around 17 when I was doing a lot of Bible study and um, I had met this guy that I had a crush on uh, from another church and he and I started kind of courting and he was Calvinist and I was not. And for anybody listening that doesn't know what Calvinism is, it's essentially the belief that God picks and chooses who he will save and he has a plan for them and that who doesn't get saved, well, mm -hmm. it's not their choice. He planned it to be that way. And when I was introduced to that, it shattered everything that I believed about God. Um, I did not think that God would be so cruel as to create people just so he could send them to hell. And I couldn't grapple with that. So I spent months just researching and, you know, asking questions, getting deep into Bible study, spending all of my extra money on, you know, Bible study books, just mm -hmm. so I could understand um, the truth in the gospel. And from then on out, it just, it kind of led me on this huge journey that it's kind of like once you get that, that little thought in your head, once you have your perception of God shattered, um, it all just kind of comes crumbling down and you really can't unsee it after that. And so, yeah, um, I took the next several years on this kind of journey, trying to figure out who God was, where my place was. I tried a different church that was a little more progressive. Um, and then I got to the point where my relationship with God was just so abstract and I couldn't define it. And I mm -hmm. couldn't define the God that I was serving that I was like, I, I don't know what I believe. I don't think I believe in any of this anymore. Um, so yeah, it just, it was a very long journey. It took me years to realize I didn't believe in God. Um, after that, I was probably 22, 21, something like that before I was like, I think I'm an atheist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> very I, long. I, I love your story. I mean, and I don't mean to like systematically break it down, but there's so many elements within it that I, yes. I think just really, yeah, well, it, it really speaks to, I think what it looks like for individuals that do break away. I mean, I, I've read time and time again, where there's been leaders of churches that have said, if you really want to increase our Christian congregation, you have to bring in children underneath the age of 12. They have to be involved. Uh, they have to um, be baptized. They have to know the doctrine. They have to know the gospel. Because if we wait until after the age you know, of accountability, if you get them up to age 14 or 15, they'll question too much and they won't believe what we believe. Uh, and for you and me both, this speaks so interesting because one of the things I, th I know that you say on YouTube in your story is that your family was more, uh, they, they attended church more as like a cultural identifier than like a spiritual experience. And my family was the same way. Going to church was a cultural thing. It was a community thing. It was a little bit about status and being involved and image. Yeah. Yeah. All those things. And, uh, I, I didn't go nearly as often as you did when I was younger, but by the time I hit 14, it was like, I got to take this seriously. I got to break this down. Mm -hmm. I have to understand it. And I think there's some element there of people that have maybe the personality or the, um, oh, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, just, just the mindset at that age. It doesn't matter how early you start them. They're going to start breaking down the materials and really diving in feet first without looking anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it does come down to just, uh, you know, specific personalities. Some people are just more stubborn than others. Some mm -hmm. people are more inquisitive. I was always an incredibly curious child. I'm still an incredibly curious person. Um, my husband always jokes, uh, curiosity killed the Christie <laughs> because I am just so curious. I remember being a kid mm -hmm. and I would always ask why I always, I was always like, why? Like to everything, you know, mm -hmm. to, to household rules that I did that didn't make sense to me or to, to things we were learning about mm -hmm. in church. I just wanted to know why. And it, a lot of times I think my family saw that as me being rebellious um, or, mm -hmm. you know, bratty. I got called a lot. Um, but for me, it was just, I really want to know the answers. Mm -hmm. Like I don't do this thing and I want to dig deeper into it. And I want to understand it. And I think that um, when it came to, the church stuff and, you know, going to youth group every week and then teaching me all these things and with such confidence and kind of drilling it in, like, this is the one way, this is the truth. To me, I'm like, well, if this is the one way and this is the truth, then I need to, to, to give it my all, mm -hmm. you know, I need to do that. Um, it's important. And I think 
no matter what religion or situation I would have been in, I probably would have done the same thing with anything else. You know, it just, that was the thing that happened to be drilled into me every week. And I didn't want to be one of those lukewarm Christians. I wanted to serve God. I wanted, you know, a relationship with God and I wanted to be in heaven one day, you know? So for me, it was like, well, I have to go all all in and God is always watching me. So, you know, it's not like I can get away with like, Mm-hmm. You know, doing it warm, he's going to know, and then I'll be in trouble. So. <laughs> yeah, that is actually a thing that hit my heart pretty hard as a Christian, that God really knows the nature of my heart. And if I'm just in it partly, and I'm just saying it without really understanding and really knowing and really trusting, am I really a Christian? And so I had to continue pushing myself to know more. And it wasn't good enough for me as a Christian to go to church and have the, the preacher tell me something or, or the pastor tell me something. I didn't know how he got to that answer. I wanted to know, okay, so you gave me the scripture and you had this uh, this message come through. What elements led you to that conclusion? And if you're like me, it's not just church that, that was that way. At my one of my first jobs as a behavior specialist, my boss is like, you're what we call uh, an individual who has an inquisitive mind <laughs> because you're always asking me questions. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I remember being in my stats class and my stats teacher was like, okay, so you put in these numbers here and you hit this button and it gives you the answer. I'm like, but what happens if you don't have this? How did you get to that answer? What is the mathematical formula I need to use to do that? She goes, we don't know that. We just know we click this button. And I'm like, well, a 12 year old could teach what you're teaching right now. (laughs) No. And it's funny because the the church, they don't want you to ask too many questions. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny how often I have conversations like on TikTok and in my comments, people will say, you're overthinking it. You're just, you're thinking about it too mm-hmm. much. And I'm like, yeah, I'm an overthinker. Like that's just, if God made me, he made my brain and he made me an overthinker. He knew this was going to happen. He should have planned for it, mm-hmm. you know, but that's just how I am. Um, and, you know, I've tried to fight against it a lot of my life, but now I just kind of give into it. I'm an overthinker. I like to think about mm-hmm. things. My mind is always just going. And um, the church does not, they they condition you to not be that way, to not mm-hmm. ask questions. And I see that just in the conversations I have with people when they're like, wow, you're thinking about this way too much. You just shouldn't think about it. And I'm like, why? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the point of, of that? Why would God not want you to think about something too much, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, yeah, maybe it's just my overthinking that makes me a godless human. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you've embraced it because now you're able to share so much information with other individuals. I, I did also want to go back to your uh, experience with one of your first relationships and the guy who was a Calvinist who kind of gave you this information about God picks and chooses. I, for one, after all this conversation, I'm, my knowledge of Calvinism is somewhat elementary because I didn't really experience that. Uh, but I do know that this verse comes out of Romans. Uh, where there's yeah. just specifically the the line where they talk about, you know, you can't come to God unless he draws upon you. I think the specific verse is something along the lines of, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. That That's a, that's a hard pill to swallow. It comes down to the fact that God made you inquisitive. He made you asking why. He doesn't want you in heaven with him. Right, right. And that right there, that bit of information it was hard for me to process when I was a Christian. And like I said, I spent months diving into it. I even broke up with my my boyfriend, you know, the guy at the time, because I was just, I, I could not believe that God would do that because I kept thinking, I'm like, well, why am I going out and evangelizing? Why am I going on mission trips? If God has chosen who he wants to save and who he wants to discard, then my place in all of this is pointless. You know, I can't save someone. I can't help bring someone to the kingdom and keep them from going to hell. I had a lot of anxiety surrounding this concept of hell. And Mm -hmm. uh, that motivated me to do kind of crazy things like go out into the community and go to the mall and hand out tracts and try to win souls. I was that person going Mm -hmm. up to random strangers trying to convert them uh, and share the love because in my mind, everyone around me is going to hell. They're all headed there and it is my job to save them. Um, and that's a big responsibility. And so I, I got to this point when I, you know, he had introduced this concept of Calvinism and, and God choosing who he wants to save. And I thought that does not sound like the God that I serve. It doesn't sound fair. And it makes me feel like what I'm doing is pointless. Um, yeah, you, you so, have the faith that Paul talks about. You're doing the works that James is talking about, and the relationship is one way. 
Exactly. Exactly. And so, and I prayed and I, I studied and I did everything I could because I was like trying to hold on. I even, I went out and got a tattoo, uh, you know, of a Bible verse. Cause I was just desperately mm-hmm. trying to cling to this, um, to, to God, because I was terrified of losing God and doing the wrong thing and believing the wrong way. And, um, it really did send me into like a faith crisis. Mm-hmm. And the number one thing that happened to me was just breaking down this idea of who God was. And I had to get to a point where I had to say, okay, do I believe in this God because people told me to, because my parents or my pastor, or do I believe in him because I've had a relationship with him because, you know, I, this is what I believe about him. And so I had to discover what I believed about him. And the more I read, the more I sought, the more questions I asked, the more this character of God broke down. And I didn't even need the verse in Romans to tell me that this God is a puppet master. You know, now I realize, oh, God is all powerful. God is all knowing. He knows the future. He forms every person in their womb before, you know, they're born. And so with all that information, just deduction, you know, all you have to do is like just deduce that this God is pretty much just kind of created his own little world and he's mm-hmm. making plans and doing what he wants and tossing some people in hell and he doesn't care and that's not a good loving father. It's not a God I want to serve. And Mm. that really is what kind of sent me on this like long journey trying to find God and then essentially just losing all belief that that God exists. Yeah. I know you're probably familiar with many of the verses in the Bible where God's, you know, hardening Pharaoh's heart or where he's, Mm -hmm. you know, hardening uh, Pontius Pilate's heart Uh, or when, you know, even the Pharaoh decides that he's going to, to do the actions that Moses is asking, but God doesn't allow him to do those actions, um, which then leads to, you know, the, the killing of babies all the way across his city, across his lands. Was was there ever like a time period where you're like, am I the Pharaoh? Like, like it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I did, I, I, I did get to that point where I was like, well, if, if I am going to hell, you know, if I am going down that road, it's because God, Put me there mm-hmm. like intentionally he wanted me to go down that road and there's nothing I can do to save myself mm-hmm. like there's there's absolutely nothing I can do I can't beg I can't plead I can't ask for salvation if God decided that I'm not going to be saved and I have to go to hell then that is my fate and I'm stuck there mm-hmm. and that is that's like that terrified me I mean, even just thinking about it now about like that place that mindset that I was mm-hmm. in it gave me so much anxiety it made me sick just mm-hmm thinking about being a pawn of God's and not being in control of my own fate. Um, Because when you aren't a Calvinist and you believe that all you have to do to be saved is believe, well, now you are in control of your own fate. You have Mm -hmm. that control. That control was taken from me. And now suddenly I don't, I, am I even like the words I speak, are they even mine? You know, Mm -hmm. it really got to that point and it made me very uncomfortable with that idea of God. And I definitely did think like, there was a point after, you know, kind of later down my journey when I started realizing I might be an atheist, but I still had fears of hell, you know, I was kind mm-hmm. of grappling and I thought, if I'm going to hell, there's nothing I can do about it. And I'm just, that, that's it, you know, that's yeah. it. So, you know? and then eventually you're just kind of like, I don't think any of that makes sense, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I say what you guys are hearing right now is an existential crisis that a lot of atheists have gone through as they left Christianity and trying to figure out where they stand in the whole, but but you're right. I mean, it it makes you feel powerless. Uh, It's like the the entire thing of free will is an illusion. It doesn't really exist. There's nothing that you can do about it. Um, And I know now when I look back, because I have people that tell me you didn't really believe you you didn't, you weren't really a a Christian. Like there's that you just weren't that individual that God would want. I was like, there's just, there's no way. Like I can't even fathom that. I, I was at the pulpit. I was preaching. I was there three or four times a week. I was going out and prophesizing and bringing people into the church. Um, if there was a time for God to like kill me and take me, knowing that I would eventually fall away, that was the time because I yeah. could not have been more devout than I was. There was no mm-hmm. doubt in my mind that there was a God and that he had a son and that he sacrificed himself for my sins. Like my belief was so solid. There was full trust in that moment, I don't think there could have been any more trust than what I had. And this is what I was getting at earlier, that beliefs do change. Like at that moment, yeah. my belief was full. God should have taken me and I would have been fine because he would have known that mm-hmm. I would have had experiences down the road that would have altered that belief. 
right? Yeah, and it's it's funny. I've had people tell me, you know, well, God knew you were going to fall away, so he didn't save you in the first place. And I'm just like, this system isn't making any sense, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And it, it, it just doesn't. And, and for people that tell me, when people tell me that I was never truly safe in the first place, um, that one, it frustrates me a lot because I think, a lot of times in my mind, I'm like, I was more devout than you probably ever, ever have been in your mm-hmm. life. You know, um, I, I know what I went through. And my response to that is always, if I was never saved, that's because God chose not to save me mm-hmm. when I devoted myself. You guys are telling me all I have to do is believe. All I have to do is trust and have faith and follow God and repent. And I did that over and over and over and over and over mm-hmm. again for years. So what you're telling me is that in my moments of being genuine and asking to be saved, God chose not to save me, which just mm-hmm. falls again right in line mm-hmm. with Calvinism. So then there's nothing I could have done about it. So then why are you mad? Mm -hmm. You know, this is God's plan. God literally planned it this way. He wants me to not be saved. He wants me to be this godless heathen straight for hell. Mm -hmm. So then why are we upset? You know, (laughs) this is is God's plan. This is what he wanted. (laughs) So I don't want to steer us too far off because I think this probably falls right in line with it. But I know you talk a lot about the relationship with God and the relationship with Jesus. And um, now... From this perspective, you oftentimes will attack this idea as like you can't have a relationship with somebody that doesn't exist. But you yourself and myself, we had a relationship with somebody that didn't exist. And there is a grieving period of losing that relationship and trying to make sense of what that is. Can you talk a little bit about your position with that relationship with Jesus? Yeah, um, I would say that losing Jesus, losing God, um, was, was probably one of the biggest losses of my life. Um, and it took me years to get over that and to, um, not, I I was angry for a very long time. I think I'm still kind of angry, actually. Like, I don't think Mm -hmm. it stops being angry. And I think that anger, it, it comes from a place of, of hurt, of grief, um, because, for a large chunk of my life, I had this security, um, of this, this loving father God that was always there, always protecting me, always guiding me. Um, and for me, just a little bit of background, my biological father was an addict. Um, mm-hmm. He was only in my life for the first few years of my life. And then um, he was no longer active in my life. And so for me, when I was introduced to this concept of like a loving father, um, that really struck me because I'm like, well, now I have this, this father that will never leave me. He'll never forsake me. Um, he's always there. He always loves me, always forgives me. And then getting to a point where I have developed this kind of fake relationship with him, this relationship in my mind. And then suddenly I'm like, I don't think he's real. Mm-hmm. That is, that's, that's world shattering. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely world shattering. And it's enough, it's enough to make somebody go crazy. I mean, I, I, you know, everybody has their own journey and deconstruction. Some people find it easier than others, but I know mm-hmm. with me and with a lot of other people, losing God was the hardest part. Um, you know, yeah, <laughs> I have a lot that I could say about that, but um, it does, it makes you angry. It makes you very angry and um, kind of abandoned, you mm-hmm. know, and there's a lot of emotions that you have to go through when you realize that there's he might not be there. And I think a lot of people think that we just one day wake up and we're like, I don't, I don't want to believe in God anymore. I'm just not going to believe in him. And then we just start like living our life of sin. And I don't think those people realize that a lot of us spend months, sometimes even years, just trying to cope with the Mm -hmm. loss of what we, we thought we had, you know, I just want to tell those people, like, imagine if tomorrow that God that you serve and love was just gone Mm -hmm. and no longer there, how would you feel? Yeah. Um, I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing that story. And again, there's similarities in your and my story. My own father was abusive and then he was absent and there was not that connection there. And even during my deconstruction, at the point that I deconstructed heaven, deconstructed hell, deconstructed the integrity of the Bible, uh, deconstructed the Trinity, deconstructed Jesus, I still believed in God. Like I still clung on to the God, the father idea for a really, really long time and continued to be devout and worship and, and continue to seek him and engage in spiritual experiences, even in church because of that connection and that relationship, because I wasn't willing to let go or come to terms with the fact that I had created or accepted this creation of an idea and attached myself to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's really tough to, mm-hmm. to deal with. And some people don't deal with it very well. You know, um, it, it I know a lot of people who have experienced, you know, a lot of kind of mental health crisis mm-hmm. just going through that greedy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's it's definitely one of the hardest parts along the journey is just losing that feeling like you had that that connection. Yeah, I know we're getting into the weeds some with this, but you also talk a lot about the deconstruction of the character of God, which I think is pretty evident if you really take a critical look at the Old Testament (laughs) and how that shifts. Um, But when you're taking a critical look at the Old Testament and looking at the character of God, uh, do you think that that critical look at who God the Father was helped you deconstruct it and let go of that relationship? That was what got got me deconstructed was mm-hmm. the, the deconstruction of the character of God. all the other stuff, um, you know, hell and Jesus and historical, you know, like the biblical inaccuracies and contradictions, all that came so much later after mm-hmm. I just didn't believe. Um, and that is why I spend as much time as I do on, you know, like on TikTok talking about God. Um, and it's funny because so many people, I think on a daily basis, I'll have multiple comments from people that are like, if you don't believe in God, why do you talk about him? You talk mm-hmm. about God like you believe in him. Or, you know, they'll be like, wait a minute, I've been following you for a while and I thought you didn't believe in God. Mm-hmm. Because I use a lot of hypothetical, mm-hmm. you know, arguments, a lot of rhetorical arguments, um, because I like to come from the premise that, okay, you're telling me that this God exists. Let's start there. I'm mm-hmm. going to go with the assumption that this God exists. Now, let's talk about this God. Let's talk about what you're saying about him and let's see if this lines up, mm-hmm. if it makes sense. And to me, I, I, I mean, everybody has their own journey. Everybody, some people find out that, you know, hell isn't biblical and that's what sparks it. But I know for me personally, just breaking down the character of God, the relationship you're supposed to have with him, how he treats you versus how you're supposed to treat him, the things that offend him, um, all of that, breaking that down and looking at it with a critical eye, um, I think is one of the best ways to, to deconstruct out of it um because god goes from being this this loving father god who just wants to mm-hmm. wrap you in his warm embrace to an actual evil monster i mean mm-hmm. it, it just it switches once you start asking questions the problem is that not enough people are willing to ask those questions because in their mind god is god he mm-hmm. made all he created you he created the rules he is the most powerful he gets the last say mm-hmm. um basically might makes right you know he mm-hmm. is right because he is mighty and there's nothing you can do about it okay fine he's so powerful he's the most powerful entity in the universe doesn't mean mm-hmm. i have to agree with him it just doesn't it, it does not um it's like saying you know because the president is the most powerful man in the united states i have to yeah. agree with everything that says no i don't mm-hmm. and um if god created me and gave me the brain that he gave me and he does exist well then he did a really poor job um you know trying to save all people you know mm-hmm. because i can clearly see that he is not a god worth serving and i think anyone with half a brain could see that if they were willing to ask the questions in the first place. But unfortunately, the church kind of puts that wall up and they say, you're not allowed to question God. You're the clay pot. How can a clay pot question his potter? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not a clay pot. I'm a human being and I have a brain and emotions and feelings and I'm going to question God. And if he can't stand up to my scrutiny, then is he really that great? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm trying to even think about where to begin with all of that because there's so many great things that you said throughout that. I, I know for myself, one of the things that helped in that process was that I took the books of the Old Testament and I put them down in the order in which they were actually written and not in the order in which they're presented to us. And in doing okay. that, you can see a transition of God changing through the writings as the conceptualization of who he was changed and mm-hmm. how it really fit throughout the stories and the laws and the culture that he was being experienced through, which was yeah. huge. It's like, oh, it's like you can see him adjusting and changing. And I told people like through our time, even in our interpretation of the New Testament, if we were to write a new New Testament, we would have another understanding of Jesus, another understanding of God, because even now in our churches, we see it preached differently and interpreted differently than what we see in the books that are actually presented in front of us. But one of the things that you touched on that I really hope to explore more is this idea of God always being right. Because 
Christians continuously tell us that God is the most moral. He is the moral example, or God is outside of morality, outside of human morality, and those rules don't apply to him. So why does he give us commands and morals, a divine law, if you will, to follow if he's outside of that divine law? Is he the word or is he not the word? Yeah, I mean, that's to me, that's so nonsensical. I always say like, they always say like, well, God is so much greater than us. He's so good that he's outside of our, you know, our understanding, our morality. But it's like, if God is so much greater and better, mm. why is he going backwards? You know, why do we have a God mm. who is murdering millions of people? Why do we have a God who's drowning people, killing babies? And so what they're doing is they're redefining morality. Um, for God, they're special pleading for God. They're basically saying morality for us is like doing what God wants, but morality mm -hmm. for God is doing whatever God wants. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what God wants to do. It's right. It's always right. Um, and, so, and so until we can even agree on these definitions of these simple words like morality, holiness, um, you know, things like that, then I don't think we'll ever really get anywhere in that conversation because we're redefining the words they're taking mm -hmm. morality and they're equating it to power they're basically saying morality and power are the same thing with god and that's not true <laughs> usually the more power you have the less moral you are that's typically mm -hmm. how it goes here on earth yeah. you know <laughs> people who are very powerful are often not very moral right um and if you want power uh you're probably not the person that deserves to have the power and mm -hmm. so the fact that you know, that God is just up there saying, I am so great. I am so powerful. All of you worship me, do what I say, and I'm going to do whatever I want. And you have to agree that it's good. That to me does not equate to moral or good or holy or righteous. It just, that doesn't work in my brain. And I always compare it to a human being. If a human being acted the way God acts, um, you know, think about the, the kindest person, you know, the most compassionate, nicest person, never, never done any harm, mm -hmm. you know, went to harm a flight. What if they told you that you had to do whatever they say and they can do whatever they want? They went around like killing people just because they're so much better than you. They're so much more moral. It just doesn't, it doesn't compute. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it's not aligning for me. And that's just when you get the Christians that say, well, God is mysterious, you know, <laughs> in mysterious ways. Absolutely. I mean, that, that was one of my biggest pieces of deconstruction too, is that it's good because God said that it was good or it's moral because he said it was good. It's not that there's a set law. It's not do not murder. It's do not murder unless God tells you to. Like that, that is what it came down to is it's okay in these instances, but not in these instances. And that I think was eventually the piece of just like, I, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't determine how to live my life based off of these laws because it doesn't make sense. And the stories you're telling about very much reflect exactly what Calvinism would teach, which is, this is what I get from Christians. When I talk about all the babies that were killed or the flood that murdered everybody, et cetera, they go, well, that was because of sin. God already knew those people were evil and they needed to die. So they never had free will. They never had the choice to change or to choose. God immediately knew who they were going to be. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I think that unfortunately this doctrine and these teachings are kind of act as an empathy blocker. Um, and so it keeps people from being able to put themselves in the shoes of, of others, mm -hmm. you know, and to actually consider them. And, you know, when I consider things like, you know, like the flood and, and God just wiping people out, I, I literally picture like a mother holding her infant child on a rock while floodwaters rise above them and they're gasping for air and then they die. Like, that is what I picture because I, I consider the people. And of course, I don't think that really happened. But if you're telling me that really happened and that you serve the God that did that, that is not very good. And so unfortunately, it's that they it's that block of empathy. And for me, I feel like my empathy just outgrew my belief. You mm -hmm. know, I got to the point where I couldn't look at these stories and these things that God did and that people say were so, you know, it was so great that he did this. I couldn't read those stories that way. Yeah. I read them and I just felt really nasty inside. Didn't feel good. I didn't feel like the God that I'm reading about, I would want to worship. Um, no matter how mighty or great he is, it kind of seems like he uses his power for bad, not good. Mm -hmm. And so if you just assign everything God does as good, then the word good just becomes point like obsolete. It becomes pointless. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's no reason using the word good. If you're just going to say anything God does is good. <laughs> yeah. So how do you just determine what's good then? 
now that you are outside of Christianity, you don't have this book of rules to read, which I imagine you didn't really utilize that to determine what to do that was right and wrong. How, how do you determine your own morality? You know, I think all people, I think all people, well, most people, um, you know, there are the exceptions, but I think most people know good when they see it because um, we are human beings that have evolved mm -hmm you know, with an evolved morality. Um, and we understand that as if you're not harming someone else, um, then you're probably doing good. You know, um, I also learned to see things not so black and white, not so good and bad. Um, there's also neutral actions. There are actions that are not good or bad morally. They're just mm -hmm. neutral. Um, and so, you know, the morality question comes up a lot. I've done a lot of reading on, you know, kind of uh, this this idea of um, science determining our morality, uh, our mm -hmm. overall desire for well-being. Um, and I think, to me, that makes the most amount of sense. Uh, morality is subjective. I don't think that there is an objective morality. Um, I don't think it's relative either. I think that we can determine um, what is good and bad and beneficial and not beneficial to our overall mental, emotional, or social mm -hmm. well-being, right? Um, but that just takes work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it, it takes data, it takes work. And the answers aren't always clear-cut. But um, basically, at the end of the day, if, if somebody's not being harmed, then nothing bad is being done, right? You know, it, it really just comes down to that. And unfortunately, with Christianity um, and a lot of other religions, but with Christianity specifically, um, it's what is immoral is what's offensive to God, not mm -hmm. what's offensive to other people. And, you know, in my mind, if it's, if it's only offensive to God and it's not offensive to people, then mm -hmm. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> you yeah. know, you can about that, but I'm not going to worry about it. <laughs> so I, I do want to give more definition to the word harm, because I think when most people hear yeah. the word harm, they're thinking about physical harm being done to someone. <laughs> but I imagine you yeah. expand that more to emotional, psychological, etc. So are, are there actions that you see that are taking place that you would identify as being harmful, even from the church towards society? Yeah, um, indoctrination, you know, just general indoctrination. Um, and, you know, that's a, a lot of people kind of conflate indoctrination with education. You know, they'll mm -hmm. say, well, the schools are indoctrinating their children or everybody indoctrinates their children. But um, that's not necessarily true. You know, indoctrination is the process of, of making someone accept some information that you're giving them without questioning it, you know, making them feel as though they're not allowed to question it and that it's supposed to be accepted as truth. And I think that is incredibly dangerous. I think it is incredibly harmful. Um, if you look up indoctrination um, on Wikipedia, the very first image that's brought up is an image of Hitler youth um, <laughs> doing a Nazi salute. And so mm -hmm. that just kind of paints a clear picture of how dangerous indoctrination can be. And um, unfortunately, it is hard. It's hard to define um, when you're actually harming someone um, with religious beliefs. And so that's where like the waters get muddy when you're having the conversations with Christians because they're like, well, you know, we're just sharing what we believe. We're just teaching our children our values. Um, how well, is that harmful? But and to be fair, to be fair, this is also a challenge. Folks know I'm, I'm a licensed social worker. I've worked in child welfare now for almost 20 years. And it's also a challenge in that realm, too, to really identify what psychological and even in some cases emotional abuse looks like. This is why our statistics show that physical abuse and you know sexual abuse are some of the most frequent things we see in terms of harm towards others or towards children, because the... The determining factors for psychological and emotional are so subjective that it's really hard to put it on a criteria and just check mark and say, oh, yeah, this was psychological abuse. I think about that a lot. I think about how we protect children from physical harm, or at least we try to, you know, but we don't focus on psychological harm. And psychological harm can last as long, if not longer, sometimes as physical, mm -hmm. you know, um, that damage can be a lifetime. It can destroy a person. And it's really difficult to pinpoint. Um, and I don't know that there is any kind of a, a solution to that other than just continuing to raise awareness and get people mm -hmm. to ask more questions about what they believe so that they can break free from the things that harm them and other people, right? You know, I don't think that there is any kind of systemic uh, or structural kind of approach we can we can take to undoing or you know preventing all this psychological damage done in the church and in yeah. Christian homes. 
But I think if we continue to have these conversations, we continue to raise awareness, we get people to ask the right questions, then you'll see a lot less people falling into these belief traps, a lot more mm-hmm. people thinking for themselves, and you'll see just that dwindling down of, you know, church attendance mm-hmm. and therefore church indoctrination. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I mean, for me, I... This will get a lot of heat. I don't know that anyone from the far right ever listens to my podcast, but it'll get a lot of heat that I think that fear is or the the indictment of fear in those situations is a determining factor. At the point that you are coercing anyone, especially a child, to believe something on the threat of eternal damnation, that's probably psychological abuse. Yeah, I think that's a great, I mean, I think that's a great factor. I think that's, that's a good point. Um, you know, indoctrination, unfortunately, that it, it's paired with fear. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of the main component of the indoctrination, because the reason you feel you, could, you can't question is because you're afraid of what might happen if you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's one thing to teach children, you know, this is what I believe. I think God is real. I think God loves us all. You know, I think we should pray and he can guide us. That's, probably not bad. It's not going to harm a child, maybe a child who has like some kind of a severe OCD mm-hmm. or anxiety that might kind of get to them, which mm-hmm. is why nothing is like it for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you get to the point where it's like, you have to believe this or else, or else God will be mad or else you will go to hell or, you know, anything like that. Um, that is when I think it gets into very dangerous territory. And if you have, to, it's so weird because fear is the main kind of component of that indoctrination. And that is what's most used to keep people, you know, controlled in line. But the Bible itself says that in perfect mm-hmm. love, fear is not found. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the perfect love with God, there is no fear. And so it is very interesting to see how fear is the main tool used to to get people to have this faith, mm-hmm. to, to be in this perfect love that <laughs> fear is not supposed to be found. <laughs> So we only have like 10 minutes left and I really wanted to talk about this because even though you, you only share this in a couple of videos on TikTok, I don't hear that you're given an opportunity to speak about it very often. And that's your own path to spirituality now or how you explore your own spirituality in some way. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying when we started this podcast is that we have these uh, neuronal connections between dendrites, this path that is created for belief systems that are there in our frontal cortex. And we may not hold that same belief anymore, but we build on top of it and continue to find connection. In fact, one of the things that they found in these research studies is that people who believed in God as a young child, even after they've rejected God, will still be more susceptible to believing in other types of fantastical ideas and connecting to them to find meaning in their life. Now, I'm not suggesting that you yeah. believe in unicorns and leprechauns, you know, leprechauns <laughs> and that type of thing, but I do imagine that you have found some sort of spiritual expression to find connection and meaning in life, if you wouldn't mind talking about that. Yes, um, I would love to. You know, when I first left Christianity and I realized I was an atheist and no longer believed, I instantly felt like I had to cling to a spiritual practice or belief. Mm -hmm. And I think the most common one, uh, probably not unique to me, I'm sure a lot of ex-Christians do the same thing, um, I kind of deviated to um, new age spirituality. So Mm -hmm. I started reading all about crystals and chakras and auras and you know, I was interested in witchcraft and um, Mm -hmm. I kind of, uh, you know, um, teetered on that for a couple of years until I got to the point where I was like, I don't like there's there's not a reason to believe in any of this stuff. Like it's not scientific. Um, This is all kind of like, woo, uh, you know, why do I believe in this? And I kind of got back to that same point where I was like, wait, why do I believe this? Let Mm -hmm. me look into the science behind this. And that's when I became a little more analytical. And over time, I kind of dropped those those spiritual beliefs. Um, And I think that I became very skeptical and and um, what's skeptical almost as like a defense mechanism Mm -hmm. because I think I realized that I had fallen into so many false beliefs before and I had like kind of dedicated myself to things that weren't true in the past Mm -hmm. and I got to the point where I was like I think I need to just not not believe things you know (laughs) before I have like good for them. Um, But I also realized that you can kind of become a little too analytical, a little too steeped in realism and um, not be open-minded about the possibilities. And so now I've kind of gone backwards a little bit. And now I'm at the point where I don't believe things that that I 
you know, haven't been proven to be true, but I like being open to imagining all of the possibilities and imagining that there might be some kind of a source, you know, that I can connect to, or maybe, and this is kind of where I fall in these days is we are all universally connected. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we are all our own gods. Maybe mm-hmm. we are as ancient as we can imagine. And we have all of these, you know, past lives that we lived and we put mm-hmm. ourselves in these little simulations that we live and then move on to the next level and meet all all meet back <laughs> mm-hmm. up afterwards and who knows you know um and so i just like imagining the possibilities and i find that i get my spirituality through nature through hiking climbing mountaintops mm-hmm. um just sitting with the trees on the grass and nature and connecting to myself and if i am connecting to something greater than myself i don't think that that thing or that source or that energy cares that I label it or that I Mm. worship it or pray to it. I think that the purpose is to just live and to experience whatever I experience and not um, have to constantly seek purpose or meaning, but to just live in the moment. I think that that's my purpose is to just live. (laughs) If we were in person, I'd give you a hug. I had somebody ask me, I don't even know, maybe a year ago when I first started on TikTok and they're like, well, if this isn't the purpose, then what's the purpose of life? And I was like, purpose of life is to experience life. And they go, it's not that just simple. Live it. It's like, it is that simple. You're, you're just supposed to experience yeah, life. <laughs> I will, I'll give a little plug here. This isn't anything to do with like religion or spirituality, but the, the book, um, the midnight library, have you read mm-hmm. it? Um, I just finished it on, on audible and that's kind of the whole purpose of the book is just teach you how to just, just live. You know, mm-hmm. life isn't about finding purpose or meaning. It's about just living. And I recommend it to anybody listening, the midnight library, fantastic book that will really kind of drill that point home. <laughs> I love it. Well, Christy, thank you so much for hanging out with us. If you could let people know where they can connect with you, learn more about your story, or maybe explore some of the research that you've done on these topics. Yeah, look me up on TikTok. Uh, YouTube, also, I'm trying to get back to that, uh, but all of my stuff right now is, is on TikTok, Christy.Burke. Very easy to find me. Um, if you look me up on YouTube, that'd be great too. And um, hopefully after the first of the year, I'll be getting some more videos up there. All right. Sounds great. Thanks again, Christy. And thanks everyone for hanging out with us today. I appreciate you taking the time and listening uh, to our conversation. As always, go out, be the best version of yourself. Just imagine what the better version looks like you. Who are you going to be tomorrow, 10 years from now, and embody that sentiment today. And as always, do what the fuck you will. 